one of the main things too is just people just kind of sticking out like a sore thumb and it's so unbalanced. I think people of color sometimes feel uncomfortable going into this sport that is just predominantly white. You know, I've never really let it be any sort of limiting factor for me. And I know there are a lot of people of color that still feel that trail runners and, and runners in general, like these are my tribe of people. It's so welcoming. I don't feel racism in our sport. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not lacking racial and ethnic diversity. But uh, I think the more that we start to see that diversity, the more people will say, oh, they're doing like, I can do that too. It's the same thing with recovery. It's when people start seeing other people do it. Oh, if they did it, then I can do it. And so that's kind of why I wanted to be more open about my recovery, but also I wanted to be more open about this topic too, to inspire people like, no, you, you're welcome here. That's Yassine Daboon, and this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, coming at you with a fresh episode of the podcast. This week, I had a great conversation with ultra runner Yassine Daboon. Yassine is a super accomplished athlete. He's finished in the top 10 at Western States. He's represented the U.S. internationally at World Championships, and he's been super competitive across a wide range of distances. He's also one of the nicest guys that you'll ever meet. Yassine's got an incredible story about how he changed his life, and I'm excited for him to share it here with you in this episode. We also talk about the relationship between confidence and consistency, his longevity as an athlete, and how to keep the fire burning. Yassine also told me about experiencing racism throughout his life, the systemic barriers that prevent people from participating in the sport of ultra running and what needs to change, creating more opportunities for kids of color to get outside and experience nature, and a lot more. This is a great one, folks. So let's dive right in with Yassine Daboon. All right, Yassine Daboon, the seeds for this conversation were planted on the trails last summer in Chamonix. And while I'd have loved to have recorded this with you in person where you live in Portland, Oregon, I couldn't be more excited to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks, Mario, for having me. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. There's a lot that I want to cover with you in the course of this conversation, but let's start by rewinding the clock a bit. I'd love to go back 20 years to the year 2000. (laughs) How old were you and what was going on in your life at the time? Wow, it seems like such a long time ago. um, The year 2000, I was 21 years old and... I was actually um, trying to turn my life around at that time. And I had uh, moved up to, I went to high school in Orlando, Florida. uh, And then I moved up to Pennsylvania to join my brother. And we both um, were playing division three basketball, believe it or not, at a small college in Pennsylvania. And I uh, still was kind of in the throes of uh, substance addiction, unfortunately. And, um, you know, as anybody that has struggled with that knows that it's uh, kind of like maybe one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. And, uh, you know, eventually I did finish one season, but, um, I realized that like, you know what, I, uh, 
I can't be a college athlete and juggle all these other things. So I ended up uh, quitting that school and driving out to Colorado. I packed my van and, um, and that's the thing too, is like in my life, I've always, I always um, tried to change the external things you know, it's always, it was always like, Oh, this town that I'm living in is, it sucks or these people mm-hmm. I'm not ha- hanging out with these people anymore. It was always these external, you know, material things or geographical changes that I needed to make. And, and it wasn't until about five years later that I realized it was an inside job and not an external. So I, that's where I was at 20 years ago. I, uh, the millennium new years, I partied in the streets of Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> Uh, and the flats of Cleveland is a random place to be, but um, that's kind of where I was at. I, uh, I was playing basketball at a uh, small college in uh, Pennsylvania. And then I had, um, in that year, I had dr- driven my van to Denver, Colorado, Golden, Colorado, and lived there in Colorado for about four years after that. How long had you been struggling with substance abuse? I started very young. I started uh, abnormally young, actually. Um, probably took my first drink when I was about 12 years old. And wow. yeah, you know, it's crazy to think about too. My daughter is going to be 10 here and to be thinking like in two years, you know, that's what I was doing. But uh, kind of makes me cringe a little bit, uh, especially for my mom. Um, but anyway, yeah, I started then. I wasn't like a regular uh drinker uh, at that young age but i did like start it picked up steam and then i also developed addiction with nicotine and tobacco products and um eventually it just kind of like snowballed and snowballed as i as i aged and then by the time i was you know just out of high school it was kind of full-blown so this was all pretty early on pre-teen early teen years yes unfortunately i started pretty young and i think well, I've you know there were a lot of, of theories of, of why I, I developed that, and you know I've learned so much about myself and learned about you know addiction as a disease, and you know you a common a common thread that you see in people that have developed substance addiction is they come from broken homes, which I did. My parents got divorced when I was six. And then, um, you know, I was, I just felt, didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. I mean, I moved from a city in Pennsylvania to a, a rural town in Pennsylvania where nobody looked like me. And that was the first time I experienced racism. And that was at about 12 years old, but at that same time. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people, uh, self-medicate even to this day. I mean, whether you're 12 years old or you're, 70 years old, you know, there's trying to numb the pain or discomfort or, or things like that. So it worked for many years and then it stopped working. When did it go from experimenting with these things to developing an addiction to these substances? Well, I would say pretty early on, I drank very, I, I, it was not, it was very abnormal type of usage. I mean, I would drink fast and hard and a lot. And for a skinny kid, I would just, yeah, I would just pass out and then like throw up and get sick and uh, get alcohol poisoning. 
Um, and then kind of over time, as I like went through high school, I started, you know, sort of developing a tolerance and learning how to do it better and whatnot. And, um, you know, and I had a lot of great times and, uh, you know, partying and using illicit drugs and stuff like that. And I don't regret any of the things that I've done. Um, I, I would say after around just after high school, I was about 18 or 19. That's when it started becoming less of like, okay, this is a social fun thing to do. This is more of like, I need to do this and I'm doing this in a very antisocial way. Mm-hmm. You know, even like, you know, living with roommates and, you know, sneaking out to do, you know, use different substances in different ways and to not even be around them because I didn't, I was embarrassed of how much I used or what I used, you know, compared to them. And I would go back and drink with them and party, but it was very abnormal usage um, from about high school, uh, senior year of high school and on, onward till I was uh, 25. Was your mom and your siblings aware of your using at the time? Oh yeah. Yes. My mom um, sat me down when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I still remember her telling me that, you know, that I may have, you know, some genetic predisposition towards this because some of our family members, my dad had issues with it in the past. Um, And I just remember thinking like, oh, that's not going to be me. Like that's, I'm never going to be like him or you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's one of those one of those last things. Uh, it's one of those things you often hear um, in people in recovery is like them claiming that that's not going to happen to me. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use cocaine ever, you know, or I'm not gonna do this or that until next thing you know, you are addicted. <laughs> Did your dad have any presence in your life when you were growing up? Unfortunately, not a whole lot. No. And uh, I think that is a big part of, you know, my story. And um, like I said, they split up when I was about six years old. But even before that, he just was not around much. He, um, he was working a lot. He was also, you know, uh, came from another country. He moved here from Morocco and uh, 1975, I believe I was, uh, I was, I'm sorry. I believe he came here in 1975. I was born in 78. And then my sis, my brother was born two years later and then my sister. And so then all of a sudden he is in this new country, the America, the land of opportunity, the American dream. Right. And then all of a sudden he has, um, you know, an American wife, three young kids and he experienced his own culture shock. Right. And how he dealt with it was he worked a lot and he drank and, um, you know, it's very common. Uh, it's a common response to deal with like big culture shock things. And that's, it's kind of how I developed mine as well. You know, when you were a young kid, did you recognize early on that your parents came from different cultural backgrounds? Yes, for sure. I mean, my dad had an accent and, you know, he would have family members come from Morocco to visit. And yeah, my mom was very good about educating me about our heritage on my father's side. Um, But like I said, you know, I didn't learn Arabic. I didn't learn the language because 
my dad didn't have anybody to speak to or was mm-hmm. not around ver- very much either. So, um, but I, you know, my mom was really, <laughs> strangely enough, my, ironically, my mom is the one who really taught us a lot about and took us to Morocco and things like that. And even though she is not Moroccan, so I, I, you know, I got a single moms out there, you know, especially now that I'm a parent, I just realized like so much respect for single moms who, who act as the dad and the mom. And, you know, it's uh, my hat's off to them and to her. What's your relationship with like your mom right now? We're very close. My mom and I talk very often. We visit each other. Um, We, you know, part of my process in recovery when I got sober 15 years ago was to kind of to like make amends and to clean up the wreckage of my past. And, you know, I, through the process of learning more about myself and why I drank and, and, and things like that, you start to, to really do these inward explorations where you see these patterns of action. So I, I really, I had a lot of resentment and anger inside of me and I, I realized a lot of it was kind of directed towards my parents or my upbringing. And, and then, so as I got sober and I went through this process of, of learning about why I did the things I did, I started to realize that I started to develop empathy and compassion, which is, you know, words you hear a lot, but like really empath, empathizing of like putting yourself into somebody else's shoes. And I think it's a very, it's a very relevant and pertinent thing to be doing right now as we're going through the things that we're going through in our country is to empathize and put yourself seriously, deeply into somebody else's shoes. And so I was able to see that like my father and mother in that moment in the seventies or early eighties were doing that the best that they could with what they had at that time. And I start to be able to, to let go of this resentment that I had. Um, I think the resentment is a very toxic thing to be harboring. I mean, I've heard a quote once where, you know, resentment is like, you know, taking poison and then hoping the other person gets sick from it. Before you got sober, did you realize that you were holding on to all of this resentment? No, in fact, you know, like I said, uh, or uh, your question before my mom had like warned me when I was really young. And then like throughout my using, she talked to me about my using. And one of the things that denial is, is such an important, is such a common thing for people in substance addiction. But I actually did, I actually acknowledged that I had a problem. I, especially as I got into my twenties, even when my mom would like talk to me and I just was like, yeah, like, well, this is what I'm doing with my life. And I acknowledged I had an issue and I, I just thought, well, this is my life. You know, you worry about your life. I'll worry about my life. And this is how I want to live it. (laughs) And, uh, but she, you know, I was not aware. That's the thing is like, I was not aware that I had so much anger and resentment inside of me. When did you first seek help for your substance abuse problems? So I, like most people, sought help when there were no other houses on the block. <laughs> you uh, you often hear about that, you know, it's like, uh, I didn't, 
I didn't say like, okay, I think I'm going to go change my life now. I'm going to get better. Uh, I, I, I burnt every bridge. Um, it was the last house on the block. My, uh, my, my own mom said that she would not let me live in her place unless I sought professional help. I had no money. Uh, I was broken. I was bankrupt uh, inside and out. And that's a lot of times what needs to happen for people uh, that, that really struggle with, with uh, addiction is that they need to hit rock bottom. They need to have nothing left. They need to be desperate. And uh, I, I became desperate. I really wanted to change my my life, not for anybody else, but for myself. And I just, I was just, I hit that perfect variable of like the end, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And it was a great variable to have because I was desperate. And, you know, when you start really setting your intentions, like when you start wanting to do things, stuff starts happening around you. And that's, that's what happened to me just before my 26th birthday. Rewinding from there, I'd love to just continue pulling on that thread a bit. When you were growing up as a kid, as a teenager, did you have that sort of mentality where you would set your mind to something and you just had to do it? Or is that something that came when you hit rock bottom and you knew that you needed to or you wouldn't make it? You know, I was very athletic growing up. I I played mostly team sports. Um, in fact, you know, running uh, like cross country and track and stuff weren't as appealing to me. I was more of a team sports player, soccer, basketball, baseball. And I was always very, um, I was also, I was also very driven in those areas and those sports and, and becoming better. Uh, but when it came to like school and things like that, I, I just did enough just to get by really, to be honest. And um, it wasn't until I got sober that I found endurance sports and that's really when I, I, I found something like I found like this mental, this focus, this, this driving um, discipline that you need to, to really hone in on in order to, to improve. And I, I really connected with that when I got sober at 25, 26 years old. What was the process of getting sober like for you from that moment that you decided that's what you needed to do to the point where you felt like you had enough control to move forward without going backward? Man, you're asking some great questions. Uh, well, getting sober is, was, is (laughs) the most difficult thing that I've done because you have to not only get over the physical, um, urges to, to use. Uh, obviously, there are some physiological, um, you know, addictions where you you go through these acute you, you go through these acute post withdrawal syndromes, and those were very difficult. Like you know, just massive headaches and uh, you know, physiological um, things that are happening that because your body is so used to processing alcohol on a regular basis, or you know, getting these substances, and then all of a sudden you're like nothing. Um, so that was very difficult, but more so it's, you know, the compulsion and the mental obsession of using, I had to basically change the way I had to rewire my brain is really what happened. I mean, it's like going into the wall of your home and just start ripping stuff out and rewiring everything because I had to like think differently. I had to change the people that I hung out with. I had to like, 
really set myself up to not, because it's a very slippery slope. So I had to set myself up to not be in situations that are going to be dangerous for me, especially early on. And it was very difficult, but the longer that I went and um, the more confident I became. And it's just like running too. I mean, you coach people, right? You, you realize that confidence and is so important in these things. And the training that the athletes put forth gives them also not only the physiological and physical adaptation, but it also gives them this sense of confidence and like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is really needed. And it, there's a lot of parallels there. And that's what happened with me is I, I did the first 28 days sober in an in, inpatient in a treatment facility where I'm really grateful for that because it's, it'd be very difficult to just be out in the world trying to do it. And so I, I, was, I learned so much in this place about the disease of addiction and the networks around me that can help me. And then uh, before I got out of there, I set myself up for success with outpatient networks of people and activities that I could get involved in to like really just stay in the middle. Uh, it's like if you think about a, a circle of a crowd of people, I wanted to stay in the middle. If you're on the outskirts of that crowd, it's very easy to just like get out out of the pack and next thing you know, you're a lone wolf again. But uh those were some of the things that I did as I started to change my life in 2004. And, um, you know, it was funny because when I, I was going to these meetings and I, you know, 12 step meetings and I had realized that I needed to stop smoking cigarettes. So at six months sober, I decided I was going to quit smoking cigarettes. And a lot of my friends, man, I can't imagine you smoking cigarettes. <laughs> but uh, six months, uh, six months sober, I quit cigarettes. And I knew from my athletic background that I needed to incorporate some sort of cardio to fight the urge to smoke. So I, st- I was lifting weights. I was a lot bigger than I am now. Uh, I was probably 10, 10 to 15 times bigger than I am now of muscle. And uh, I was in the gym. I was like, you know, taking creatine and like whey protein and trying to bulk up, you know, <laughs> you know, to get the big muscles. But then I realized like, all right, if I'm going to stop smoking, I need to do some cardio type stuff. So I actually just started running like short distances, you know, two, three miles around the, around Ithaca, New York. And that's what really, that's when I got kind of hooked on running. I realized, and uh, a, a friend from the meeting had said, you know, you should do the, uh, the YMCA triathlon this May. And I was like, shoot, what's that? You know, swimming, biking, running, you know, he's like, I got a bike you can borrow. I was like, sweet. Okay. Just need to get in water. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I did. Exactly. And that was the, that was what really lit the fire for me because that gave me something to focus on. It gave me this structure and this framework. It's like, okay, Tuesday, I'm going to go to the pool and I'm going to swim, you know, and Wednesday I'm going to do, you know, some weight training and Thursday I'm going to get on the bike, you know, and Friday I'm going to do a run, you know, and it, it, it just became like, okay, it gave me something to really obsess about and, and, you know, instead of alcohol or substances. And that's what really got me started. Um, to fast forward through that, I did a bunch of triathlons. And what always happened was I was okay in the water, uh, you know, decent on the bike, and then I would catch everybody on the run. So <laughs> people were just like, 
you're going to be a great triathlete once you get your swimming and your biking dialed in. And I, and I was like, or I could just go run. Yeah, exactly. I could get rid of those other two things and just focus on what I'm good at. <laughs> and that's kind of what I did. And then I also, at that time, discovered trail running. And uh, then I started reading books about ultra marathons. And, you know, I'm just kind of fast forwarding through things. But uh, um, what's it pause right there? Yeah, yeah, sure. There's a lot that I want to unpack about what you just said and and going back to this idea of confidence when you were getting over your substance addictions i think what comes out of it, like confidence in anything comes from consistency in training you're going to get more confidence Absolutely. the more consistent that you're training and hearing you describe like 28 days in a treatment facility when you're in a situation like that i imagine things become routine and you develop this consistency and you mm-hmm. gain confidence the longer that you're able to stay with that program and then continue it on when you're going out. And I, I mean, I've never dealt with any type of addiction problems in my life, but I am a competitive athlete and I, I coach mm-hmm. runners and I can see those parallels now. And it's pretty amazing just how similar they are. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. I mean, you, you start to build up this, you know, this foundation and this base, right? Just like in training for uh, athletics, but you, you hit a, you know, you hit a year, you hit a big milestone. Um, you start to learn different tools just as you would in your training. You start to learn different tactics. Oh, if I do, if I do these uh, exercises and focus on strengthening these areas, I'm not going to have IT band problems, right? Or if I, and the same thing in recovery, if I start doing this, I start helping other people. This actually helps me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm starting to help other alcoholics recover. Now I'm actually, this is how I'm staying sober is by helping other people. And it's It's actually, it's given me purpose. It's given me um, so much inspiration and the same thing, you know, goes with, uh, you know, and then the longer you go, the more confident you become, you get these intrinsic rewards, you know, just like in, in running, you know, where you, you know, you've been there, you've done that. I know I can do this, even though through the rough patches. The other thing I want to pull out of what you said there that I think is relevant to this is you mentioned how you were focused on keeping yourself squarely in the middle. And when I think of that, of this idea of being in the middle, you're surrounded on all Mm -hmm. sides. And that's Mm -hmm. like surrounding yourself with community. And if you do fall, you've got people there to catch you. Is that how you were thinking about it as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, um, this is one of the ways that people recover. Um, it's, it's about, it's about community. And I mean, if you think about, you think about it, it's like, if you look at anything, I think we're all looking for like a connection to something bigger, right? Like we have the running community, which now very much serves that for me too. But I also, I'm still involved with the recovery community, but you see that in religions as well or, you know, cults or, or certain things like that, where you, you have this connection to some, you even see it on social media, right? I mean, people that are on Facebook or they're connected to something bigger than them. And yes, that is a big tactic in recovery is being able to uh, relate with other like-minded folks and to be able to help each other out. You know, the always joke, it's like, as long as we all don't have a bad day on the same day, then we're going to be okay. Right. But, 
you know, we're all there to help each other out and pick each other up, like you said, when we fall down. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Forgive me if this question seems like it's coming out of left field, but what do you say to anyone who might be listening to this conversation who is struggling alone right now with whatever it is in their life due to the pandemic and the fact that we aren't supposed to be around too many people at one time? So that's a really great question because uh, this is a very tough time to be trying to get sober because, like I said, so much of it is about connecting with other people. Um, I would say, you know, reaching out via telephone and Zoom and connecting, you know, feel free to message me. I've had a lot of messages from people in the recovery or trying to get sober uh, since the pandemic. And even just messaging with people, checking in on each other. Um, on a regular basis, but also just remembering that like, you know what, you guys, I always tell people like, there are so many people that have gotten a lot worse, done a lot worse things that were more heavily addicted that have come through and gotten sober. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that I always connected to, you have to go to, you have to go to any length if you want to get sober, any length, I used to go to any lengths to get drugs and alcohol, any lengths. I mean, I would walk, I would hitchhike, I would, you know, scrounge up money to feed my addiction. And the same thing needs to happen when uh, you're getting sober. It'd be easy to be like, oh, well, you know, there's no meetings happening. You know, we're not supposed to be around people. And then I'm just going to use that as a rationalization where, well, I can't do it now. I'll wait till, I'll wait till later, till when they start opening stuff back up. The time is now, you know, the time is now to start changing your life if you truly want to for yourself. And it, it, maybe you're not done drinking right now. Maybe you're not done using yet. But if you are, you know, plenty of networks out there, plenty of ways to, to connect and start really, you know, start, start your new life right now. It can, be, it can begin right now. I had no idea that my life would be what it is today when I first got sober. Like if you would have told me that I'm, you know, doing the things that I'm doing right now, I mean, amazing. Like 
the life that I have lived over the last 15 years is just beyond my wildest dreams. And I owe it to the people that helped me early on uh, in the fellowship and just one foot in front of the other and just doing like the next right thing, like every day. And like you said, that consistency, things start stacking up and becoming cumulative. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. I think it'll be really helpful to a lot of people who are listening to this and struggling in their own way. That's that's some incredible direction right there. To continue along this line of, of addiction, you are mm-hmm. a trail and ultra runner. And it's a small sport. It's very niche, but it tends to mm-hmm. attract a lot of folks who've had problems with substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be. Why do you think that is? Yes, absolutely. I have met a lot of people with similar backgrounds. So I have read some studies on it where it talks about how our brains work in terms of trail running and the almost um, kind of synapses in our brains and how we need to make decisions constantly in the, in the trails. Um, it can be similar to actually using cocaine, for example, as one of the studies I read. But I really think that, honestly, for me, at least speaking for myself, and I'm sure people would agree with me, is that when you get out into the forest, and you, I'm sure you know this too, um, you start to feel more connected, right? You start to feel like my rhythms are more in tune with nature. I feel more, I feel more compassionate. I feel more, um, I get ideas. I feel more spiritual for lack of a better term. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think really I start to like get rid of those resentments and I start to realize like things become more clear and it's kind of these repetitive. And I think, you know, just like anything else, I mean, running can be obsessive, right? Running can be uh, OCD, <laughs> you know, I mean, racing yep. and, and things like that. So I've always been trying to be try to try to be mindful about that too. Cause I have noticed that in my running career that like, okay, I'm, I'm racing every other weekend. Uh, this is becoming almost like another kind of obsessive compulsive thing. So I, I really, I think there's this rush with running that you get too, like that parallels addiction. Like the, it's like the getting ready for it, the, the doing it and then the coming down from it, you know, it's like there are a lot of parallels there that I think runners who formerly had addiction to substances can relate with. And I feel like it, it's kind of like tattoos. I all of a sudden have a few big tattoos and I'm like, when I'm getting them, I'm just like, why am I doing this? This is horrible. <laughs> and, and then when I, I, I finished getting it and, uh, you know, a few days or a few months later, I'm just like thinking about the next one. And then the same thing goes with the ultras and the same thing goes with addiction. You know, there were times where I was so low, you know, beat up from, uh, you know, binges on alcohol and drugs. And I'm like, I got to stop. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And then, you know, again, it was a couple months later and I was in the same boat, you know. As it relates to ultra running, are there ever times where you have to check yourself like that because you're going too deep with it or it's becoming too much of an obsession? I I, I talked to uh, somebody about this recently, actually, that you asked because 
what happened is in my first couple of years, and I jumped up to ultras pretty quickly um, because, again, I felt really alive in the forest and the mountains and going these long distances where you're not used to, you know, you're kind of going out into this adventure mode where it's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to finish this or not, you know, whereas like a road marathon or a half marathon, I pretty much know when I'm going to finish and that I'm going to finish for the most part. But um, I, when I jumped into ultras, I realized in the first couple of years that if I did not plan some, uh, like some uh, downtime, then I got forced into it via either some injuries or just, uh, like flatness or no returns on my training. So, and then within that, what I always did, especially since I moved to Oregon in 2009, was I tried to break up my year uh, about half 50 50 and to racing and self organized adventures. So I just didn't get too like caught up in like next race, next race, next race, you know, and it was more of like a healthy relationship. And also by taking that downtime, which is almost a month uh, every year of some downtime where I'm still doing active things, but I'm, I'm taking a little break from the, uh, the running, so to speak, the hard training. I found that I, I'm still able to keep that fire and still keep the excitement for the sport. And I'm giving my mind a break too. I mean, as you know, as an athlete yourself and as a coach that, you know, trying to keep things fresh and, um, you know, keep that fire burning is a really important part because if it becomes a chore, then it's, it's the outcomes are a lot different too. Yeah, I think that's so important. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of consistency. You've got to structure things yes. in such a way that you can keep the ball rolling fairly steadily for a long time. Because I see it certainly with athletes that I coach, especially folks who are new to the sport, however they came into it. There's so many races and so many events and so many cool places to see and so many right. ways to one-up yourself in terms of a challenge and they just mm -hmm. get sucked into it right away. Yeah. And you almost you have to step in and say like, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes a little bit here because exactly. this is not sustainable and the hole that you put yourself into if you carry on this path is going to be really hard to get out of. Exactly. Yeah, there's always that, that, that FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, part of our jobs as coaches is to help kind of talk people down, like set realistic goals, set attainable goals and tell athletes like, hey, that's you're running too hard too often or you're you're that's a little much, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit too much racing, in my opinion. And it's it's a tough thing because people are so driven, right? And I want to be a believer in people and I want to be supportive of people. But at the same time, I think people respect when you, when you tell them things like that too. Yeah, well, and especially when you have the experience like you do, they know it's coming from the right place and it's coming from someone who has maybe gone too far the other way and is trying to yeah. <laughs> prevent, <laughs> prevent the other person from going down that, that same dangerous road. Totally. And I, you know, I'm all about the longevity of the sport. And I, you know, I think I attribute this style of, of my own personal um, approach to it as being able to do this for like the last 13 years in the ultra running scene, you know, and I actually haven't really knock on wood, haven't had any major injuries since then, since getting into ultras. And I really do attribute it to just like giving your system a break for a period of time throughout, throughout the year. 
and not just your muscles and joints and connective tissues and and everything, but just your internal system, your endocrine system, your you know your adrenals and yeah and everything, right? Just let everything just chill out for a second because I don't think it's good to be going, going, going all the time. While we're on this topic, how did you get into coaching? It's a good question. I was uh, studying uh, at uh, exercise science uh, at university and uh, my ex-phys professor emailed me or not, maybe saw him in class or something. And he's like, Hey, do you do coaching? I got an email from somebody in the science department and she's looking for a coach and you're the first person I thought of. And I'm like, well, actually I don't like formally, but yeah, give me your email address and I'll chat with her. And so this is right when Facebook started. And so I was kind of helping this woman out, just giving her some advice uh, I was a few, I was a few years into my own running career, right? And um, and then Facebook came out, and then I moved to Portland, and then lots of people were like messaging me on Facebook, you know, what do you do for nutrition, or like how do you, you know, da da da, asking me all these questions, and you know, my wife saw me like sitting up at night on my laptop answering all these people, and she's like you should start charging people for this. Like you're giving, you're you're like, you're spending time, you're giving them, you're consulting with them. Like, I think it's great that you're really helpful to these people, but like, I think you could probably start charging people and they would probably pay you money for it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. You know, (laughs) but I really wasn't thinking about it. Like it just kind of just happened. And then, You know, I'm laughing I, think I had the same conversation with my wife several years ago. Oh, is that ago. right? Oh, yeah. funny. <laughs> no, it just kind of happened. I love doing it. I was always designing training plans for myself. And um, it's something that I, I learned about in school, too, in terms of like exercise prescription and, um, you know, uh, structuring training plans and things like that. And, um, yeah, I love doing it. And... Uh, it just kind of came naturally and then it's kind of grown into what my business is today, which incorporates a lot more of like fitness classes and corporate wellness and um, things of that nature. When you were in school studying exercise physiology, what were you thinking about in terms of career prospects at that time? Honestly, I was, I was honestly going to go to grad school to be a teacher (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I, I was doing exercise because I really enjoyed learning about this stuff, uh, exercise science type stuff. Um, and of course, you know, we, the professor was reading the syllabus and I read ahead to week eight about the VO2 max testing and my hand goes up. Can I be the subject, you know, for this lab? <laughs> He's like, yeah. you're a runner, you're a runner, aren't you? And, you know, so, I mean, it was very applicable to what I was doing at that time. Right. I was really like, in deep into the endurance running and learning about fitness testing and learning about all these like fun classes. And I was sober. So I was like going to class and I was actually learning stuff. What a concept. Um, you know, and I would see the undergrad kids that are 19 like, with their heads down, h- hung over. And I was just like, Oh man, that used to be me, but not anymore. Uh, but uh, that's how I kind of got into it. And I was going to be a teacher, you know, and that's, uh, I realized at one point that, that was not the route that I wanted to go. And uh, at that time also, uh, Willie McBride, who's a 
good friend of mine who's my now business partner moved to Portland as well. And he approached me about starting the business in 2011. When you started the business together, what were your initial goals and how have they grown over the last several years? Yeah, good question. Um, I initial goals were to help runners in terms of coaching to also help runners avoid uh, injuries in terms of these like functional fitness classes that we, cause we were just so sick of people getting injured and ourselves like dealing with things that we're like, we want to help people be able to do what we love to do. Right. So we started doing that. And then we were also going to do initially when we set up our business, we were going to do more of like guided, like adventure trips. And that was really the focus. Uh, it was like coaching and then training to do these like adventure trips where it was like we do these cool like point to point and we shuttle people and you know groups and there was just a lot of red tape with that and it was hard to make money doing that and that kind of fell by the wayside and then we basically started doing these classes and then this woman a client of ours um emailed us once and she's like hey she's like do you guys ever do like these classes where you come into the office and a light bulb went off for us and that thus continue, um, opened up this whole avenue of corporate wellness on-site fitness classes. And that's, so that's the main way our company has grown over the last eight years is that we do, before the pandemic, we're doing like over 20 classes per week in offices around Portland where we have uh, fitness uh, trainers and yoga instructors that will go into the offices, get people out of their desks on their lunch break, offer a class, and send them back to work. And so that's been like, that was never in our mind when we started our business. And it's the way we've been able to grow. And so we still do quite a bit of coaching, but uh, the corporate stuff is also a big uh, revenue stream for us. Before I forget to go back to it, one thing I'd love to touch on again with you is what you described earlier about when you were getting sober and within six months you quit smoking cigarettes and you started running because you needed that that quote unquote cardio fix to yeah. basically supplant the nicotine addiction. And uh -huh. you mentioned how that first run, first couple runs, they were just short. But do you remember how you felt when you went out for those first runs? Absolutely. Well, there were a couple times where I felt the uh, the quintessential runner's high where you get, you know, the goosebumps and everything else. And, you know, you, the, your headphones, you hit the song and the light coming through the forest. And the next thing you know, you're sprinting and you just feel like you're on something. And so I feel like there was a part of that where I like almost kind of chased that dragon a little bit, right? Where I was like, oh my God, I'm sober, but I feel like I'm on something from this mm -hmm. very healthy and natural movement. And so, I mean, it's not why I run. And I, but there are, there are periods of time where like, okay, all the synthetic stuff stopped working for me. But now like this is a self-renewing compulsion that I have. You know, and it's not like I run every day. I hope I get the runner's high today, but you know, um, I do remember feeling that. And I also do remember making a lot of mistakes early on, I'm sure, as we all have, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I felt, I felt, I realized I uncovered something when I went out for those 
short runs and just kind of like the consistency, like you had said before, of seeing yourself improve. I think that's a very gratifying like thing is to like see you go from like three miles to like five miles to like, I remember running my first 10 mile run, you know, the big step. You mentioned how growing up as a kid, you were mostly involved in team sports. And when you were becoming sober and we're getting into like weightlifting and then eventually into running, those are oftentimes very solitary pursuits. Were you doing most of it on your own? Well, I actually started connecting with um, some runners in Ithaca. So I don't know if you know Ian Golden. He's the um, he's the owner of Red Newt Racing on the East Coast, and he he's a big uh, kind of uh, he has a presence in the Northeast anyway. But he owns a store, a running store in Ithaca, New York, and I started meeting people through them and through the Finger Lakes Runners Club, and none of these people really knew about my path. They just knew, Oh, I'm a runner. I'm a pretty good runner. Um, that's about it. And for like the first decade of my sobriety, I was pretty private about it. I didn't like just go telling people about, you know, (laughs) where I came from and what my background was. I I just said, you know, I played sports growing up and been doing, I did some triathlons and then I found running and then I found ultras and here I am, you know, and I I did connect with a lot of people there. And then when I moved to Oregon in 09, I really um, found a great community here and then also just started a community, you know, as well, like-minded people. Why didn't you talk about your substance abuse problems for those 10 years? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think, you know, people... I was probably fear of what like people would think about me like, Oh, you're just, you're one of those. You quit drinking and drugging and now you're addicted to running and ultras and stuff. Right. Or I don't know, I guess career minded. I just was like thinking about, you know, it's you say something on the internet and it's forever or whatever, you know, and it's like, who knows 20 years from now or whatever, or 10 years from now, if I'll regret being more open about my past, if that's going to affect my career in any way or employment or. So I don't know. I just was kind of private about it. And then what happened to me was I told some friends as I got to know people better and then some people I did not tell and I couldn't at one point I just couldn't remember who I told and who I didn't and I'm just realizing and then also people that I used to use with and were dying and people die every day from this disease and I was just like why am I being so private about this like there are people out there that I can help by being open being a fishbowl and sharing my experience strength and hope so I just decided that like, you know what, I, I'm going to make my legacy, my life mission to, to help people change their lives, to get sober, to like find running, find movement as an outlet, not only to alcohol abuse, but now to like a lot of the stuff that we are dealing with in our nation in terms of racism and resentment and oppression. And I think there are a lot of parallels, not only in the there are a lot of parallels from the alcohol, like self-medication to oppression and like racism and like dealing with that resentment that you feel towards 
racist people. Like that's kind of what I'm, my focus is too now is like really trying to help people of color experience trail running and to let that be um, an outlet for them too, because it is a powerful, powerful vehicle for self-expression, self-exploration and healing. I mean, it's, it's helped me heal quite a bit. Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's pivot here and talk about racism. You mentioned earlier in this conversation how you experienced it for the first time when you were 12 years old. Can you describe that experience for me? Yeah, I moved to a town. I moved from a city, the third biggest city in Pennsylvania behind Philly and Pittsburgh to a 5,000 people population town in rural Pennsylvania where I was called the N-word and... uh, everything else, every other, you know, awful thing uh, you can think of. Awful thing you can think of. Um, it was the first time I experienced like touching a kid's arm and him like wiping it off in disgust. And I was so, it was so unbelievable to me that because I had come from a city where I had black friends and, you know, many <laughs> different types of friends where it was like, I never even an issue for me. And in Morocco, it's the same way. Like there are very dark, you know, African looking Moroccans. And then there are like brown, like Arab looking Moroccans. And there's also light skinned, like European looking Moroccans. So I feel like, um, so that was very, that was the first time I experienced it was in that small town in Pennsylvania. Um, but unfortunately, like I said, you know, I, I mean, I, that was more overt but like throughout my entire life, I have felt just kind of more microaggressions of racism. And then like within the last four years um, during this current administration, I feel like people have been more emboldened to be more overtly racist. And I've definitely felt that in the last four years. What are some of the ways that you felt it in the last four years? Can you give some examples? 
Yeah, I just um, actually did a, uh, you know, I had a few um, occurrences that happened in the last few months and it it just kind of coincided with everything that was going on and everything boiling over. So I made an Instagram post on my, on my, uh, my personal account. And I just said something to the effect of, you know, two months ago I was parallel parking and I touched another car and somebody called the cops on me. Um, so I was actually, I was actually inside of a coffee shop meeting with a prospective client for coaching. It's packed full of people inside this coffee shop and a police officer comes in and asked me to step outside. And it was so embarrassing. I get out there and like, everybody's staring at me. Like, what did this guy, what did this Brown guy do? You know, he's going to jail or what did he do? You know, I get out there and I, there's no damage. I, a, a middle-aged white woman saw it happen and felt like she needed to call the cops to cover her bases to make sure nobody got away with anything. The cop, cop laughed it off. He was just like, you called me for this? <laughs> I mean, he was, yeah, he was just as amazed as I was. I was, I was just very frustrated by it. So then, you know, I went on my day and, um, couple weeks later, I was in the off, I was in the post office and I asked somebody if they were in line because they were kind of looking at the like envelopes and stuff. And, you know, he kind of freaked out and we kind of got into a little bit of a chippy back and forth. And then he just like saw me with my mask on and he's like, what are you like ISIS or something? You know? God. Yeah. And like in front of all kinds of people, right. It's just embarrassing. And then, um, and then I and then I wrote a few days after that I had went into a store again with my mask on and you know I was looking around for something and they didn't have it um, and so I kind of walked out of the store without buying anything and like loss prevention security had followed me out and was like checking me out and stuff like that and I'm just like Jesus you know and that's kind of when it was kind of coinciding with everything else I just kind of was so frustrated that I made that post about it and it's just something that unfortunately I've like experienced quite a bit throughout my life um you know what I noticed it the most is um at one point I used to have longer hair and then I I actually got it braided into cornrows (laughs) I'll have to send you a photo of that sometime but please do yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just I, have uh, a hard time picturing you with any hair on your head. Period. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know. I miss my hair, but uh, yeah, I had cornrows. That was the first time I really noticed, like, big time, like profiling, was when I had those, and I only kept them for like a week or two because I was like, man, this is crazy. Like, mm-hmm. people are looking at me like I'm a gangster or something. So anyway. um, yeah, I think the biggest response that I've gotten from people since I came forward about like just me experiencing these types of things is like, you're such a nice guy though. Like why, if they would just get to know you, like they would realize like, you know, and I'd like, that's the whole point. Exactly. That's, yep. that's the whole point behind it, right? Is like preconceived opinions about people before you ever meet them. Yeah, it's awful that, you had to experience that and sadly we'll probably continue to experience it but i think it's great and important that you're talking about it and sharing these stories now because i think 
more people, especially white folks like myself and others who have never been in that position, will never be followed out of a store because they're suspicious that I'm shoplifting something or, you know, I tap Mm -hmm. someone's bumper like you described and they're going to call the cops on me. It's like these things, they seem, you know, like, oh, that sounds crazy. And it's like, well, it's, it's maybe crazy to me, but folks such as yourself experience this all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think stuff is happening now too. I'm very hopeful mm-hmm. and I want to remain hopeful that, you know, there's some revolutionary type of things that are happening in our country where people are not putting up with it anymore. People are starting to police ourselves when yep. they hear things, right? Which I think is great and, and very necessary. And there are some shifts that are happening, you know, um, where we realize like the history of our country and what is continuing in our country needs to take some serious changes because it's what happens. I read, I heard something on NPR once on a show that most Americans have a 10 day memory. Okay. Like what's in the news now Mm -hmm. will last about 10 days and then something else is going to come up and then we're going to just keep moving past it, you know, scrolling past it. Right. And I feel like this topic is something that needs to be kept on the forefront and we need to keep our foot on the gas and keep doing the things to to change this this stigma that we have this blemish that we have yeah i agree completely and there's definitely a movement that's happening right now and it's built momentum over the last several weeks but that momentum needs to continue for real change to happen and we're talking about systemic change not just things that are happening on a day-to-day basis as you described Correct. Yes, I totally agree. Um, and and then within our niche sport of of running and trail and ultra running, that's part of of why I started mentioning those are some of the things I'm looking to do to improve diversity in that mm-hmm. because I think there's this certain stigma of like oh like that that's stuff white people do, you right. know, because they're not seeing anybody, they're not seeing anybody doing it. So. Um, it's been great ever since being on some of these podcasts. I've gotten several donations from people to join our, our trail running camp for kids, um, like uh, people sponsoring uh, like uh, entries for, for students, which is highly, uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you all that have donated. Um, and so we're, start, we're starting to get people out. I've already taken groups of, of kids of color out onto the trails. And like, I mean, I had one kid say this was the greatest day of his life. And that just like melted my heart, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Before I forget, and while we're on it, since you just mentioned it, if anyone listening to this does want to donate to your camps to give more kids the opportunity to get out on the trails, where can they go to do that? Well, simply they can just go to our website, um, which is yeastwolfpack.com, W-Y-E-A-S-T, wolfpack with a K, dot com. And all of the information is on there. And again, we've already had some very generous people helping us out. And we're actually talking about forming kind of a nonprofit wing of our business where we kind of really focus on a lot of these initiatives. You recently wrote a piece for Trail Runner called E-Racism. And in it, you wrote, there's truth that out in nature, we are all one. But until we recognize that there are systemic barriers that prevent many people from participating, things aren't going to change. Let's talk about those systemic barriers because I think a lot of us are blind to them. Can you give an example? Well, you know, I think, so 
So a lot of systemic barriers would be, uh, some of them would be, I guess, the majority of people of color, I would say, live in urban areas. Um, so I, I don't see, I don't think access is such a limiting factor, but I think it should be mentioned that access to trails um, is definitely an issue. Um, again, I think it's also going back to role models, really. Like when you, uh, when I was growing up, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was a role model or, you know, some, some, you know, maybe to young kids of color right now, like LeBron James or, or these people are role models, but they're not really seeing anybody that looks like them in our sport. Mm-hmm. So I think when we start putting, you know, the Joe Grays or, you know, people like that up on a, on a, showing them on a pedestal, like, like, low look, these are people of color, like thriving and, and successful in our sport. I think that is a uh, is a big part, and you know, I mean, I think there are socioeconomic issues as well. Even though you would think like, oh, well, running is not like you know ice hockey where you need all this money or you know you need all this uh, equipment or golf or you know other sports where it definitely is more expensive. And running, you just need a pair of shoes, right? But it's it seems like in our sport, more and more, it is becoming expensive with race entries and travel and, and things like that. So I think that is part of it. But I think the one of the main things too, is just kind of people just kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. And it's just, it's so over, uh, I guess, unbalanced that it's, I think people of color sometimes feel uncomfortable going into this sport that is just predominantly white. And I, you know, I've never really, let it be any sort of limiting factor for me. And I know there are a lot of people of color that still feel that trail runners and and runners in general, like these are my tribe of people and so welcoming. I don't feel like racism in our sport. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not lacking racial and ethnic diversity, but uh, I think the more that we start to see that diversity, the more people will say, Oh, they're doing like, I can do that too. It's the same thing with recovery. It's when people start seeing other people do it. Oh, if they did it, then I can do it. And so that's kind of why I wanted to be more open about my recovery, but also I wanted to be more open about this topic too, to inspire people like, no, you, you're welcome here. And in fact, it's a beautiful sport and it's a great lifelong activity where you're going to go to some of the best places you'll ever run as well as meet some of the nicest people that ever walk this earth too. You know, so I'm so glad we have found this community, right? Cause I'm sitting here talking to you. You're a great dude. we shared some miles in Chamonix together last summer and, you know, and we much rather be sitting together in person, but we're, we're doing it right now. We're connecting and I'm sure we'll get out for a run sometime soon. Yeah, I really, really hope we do because that'll signify that a lot of things are moving in the right direction in this country. But I think to your, I think to your point of inclusion and accessibility, if we can all do more work in that area in our respective communities where we live, start showing kids who the heroes are in this sport, show them that, look, the barrier to entry, when we really think about it, is pretty low Mm-hmm. It helps create this culture, and and I think that's where it needs to start is creating this culture with younger 
more diverse people so that it becomes a part of their life earlier and that they know that these opportunities are are there for them. So, I mean, kudos to you for starting to create those opportunities for folks where you live. And I know for me here in the Bay Area, that's something I've been giving a lot of hard thought to in the last few weeks is, okay, like I've got access to all these trails. I run them all the time. Like I've, I've got my people, but there are areas not far from where I live that are socioeconomically on a very, you know, different level. Um, And there are a lot of kids who live there have no idea that this stuff is, you know, 15 minutes away and that this could be, you know, a ticket for them out of a rough neighborhood or, you know, can just expose them to nature. And as you described earlier, like that can do a lot of good things for people. And for me personally, like that's something that I'm really committed to moving forward here is like helping create those opportunities because not only is it, yeah, it'll, it'll make me feel good. That's not the point. The point is that it's, this is, this is how like systemic change happens. And this is how, this is how like the sport really does diversify and where it really does grow, but it takes a lot of work. And I think for anyone listening to this, I mean, I think oftentimes, like, I don't mind saying a lot of people when they get to those moments where there is a lot of work involved or they've got to give something up for themselves. I mean, I just had Camila Jornet on my podcast. And one of the things she said is inclusion is more important than your intervals. And I love that. And I I think (laughs) if more of us can take that mindset moving forward, doesn't mean you don't do workouts and you don't go to races and you don't do the things that you like to do. But if you center your energy onto inclusion, that's how we're really going to create meaningful change. I totally agree. Very well said on your part. And kudos to you for for doing that too, because I think it's not like one person's going to change it or, you know, it's like, like you said, it's everybody chipping in a little bit here, a little bit there, offering your time, your energy. If you're a race director, seeking out, not just saying, Hey, we have some free entries for you, but like actually like seeking out groups and like trying to make it fun and inviting and welcoming and all those little things add up, not just in our sport, but in our, on our country as a nation, right? To start yeah, changing things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think like individually, if we take on these responsibilities and these initiatives collectively, the sport is going to benefit. A lot of people who have zero exposure to it right now are going to realize how great it is and the opportunities that it can provide. But it starts with those of us who are in it right now to create that environment, create those opportunities for others. Absolutely. I would love, I would love someday to hear some, you know, person of color, like that said that they heard about, you know, trail running because of me. And then they uncovered this amazing activity that is such a, you know, such a huge part of my life. Like if, you know, I could help some people discover this and then that helps them in turn be a better person and find something. Like that would be, that would be great. A few more things before we wrap up this conversation. You're a dad, you have a young daughter. How do you talk to her about these sorts of issues and experiences that not only you've had, but that she may experience herself? Yeah, it's a tough thing. And as uh, many of you parents out there know that like there's so many topics and so many issues that you have to talk, try to explain and um, in a way that 
you actually, you know, some, some topics you don't know the answer, but you have to try to explain and you can just see their furrowed brow and like trying to understand it. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. Racism does not make sense to a little kid, you know? And it, I think that's the heart wreck wrenching part about it is like, why did they kill that man? Like <laughs> he was just laying on the sidewalk. Like, how do I explain that? You know? Um, but you know, um, really talking to her about like factual stuff, not, not the things that they, uh, put in textbooks when you're in elementary school. Like, like I actually talked to her the other day about like, who, who came to this country. Right. And she told me, and I said, who was here when they got here. Right. And she told me native Americans. And I said, do you know what happened? And they said, she said, yeah, they came and killed them all. And I was just like, yeah. And then so, so and then we started talking about like the realness in a very simple way of like things that happened and like um, really how the way certain things and certain people and entities have behaved is immoral and was not right. And a lot of people have stood up to fight against it. And then we've kind of still are experiencing things, but this is not the way we're going to act. And this is, this is, we're going to work hard to change this. And so really having these open and honest conversations, she's at a tough age now too, because she's like nearly 10 years old. So she's kind of starting to understand things and you can't like gloss over stuff as much. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I'm also, I want to be honest. Um, about what's going on too and not like try to shelter her and like shield her from everything. Yeah, there are two big things there that I'd love to pull out. Number one is just the the innocence of a child. As you described, a kid can't understand why, you know, a police officer has got a knee in his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Like it doesn't make any sense to them. And it's just like an example that, Racism is something that is taught. Um, it's something exactly. that you learn. It's not something that is innate with you. And I think that starts with education, as you just described, on an individual level, talking to your kid very openly about it. And I realize it's a sensitive topic and you've got to be careful how mm-hmm. you bring that into the conversation. But then, two, in schools, like education. I mean, I've just learned in the last few weeks a lot of the things that I was not taught in school. Like I had no idea what Black Wall Street was until just a few weeks ago. And it's like, this is a, this is a big thing that has like, you know, very like that had very real implications on history and isn't in textbooks. Um, and mm. it's like, that's the systemic part of it too, that I think also needs to change so that we are more aware of this country's history and the real oppression that folks face. Totally. And I believe that people can change because I changed, right? 28 days is where I started and I rewired my brain. Like I said, I started to rewire my brain and I think people, I am hopeful and I believe that people can learn. They can unlearn racism. Yeah. I think that's an important takeaway for anyone who is listening to this, that you shouldn't feel bad or terrible or helpless. It's like, okay, this is what I've been sheltered from for a majority of my life. And 
a lot of these microaggressions that we talk about, I don't even realize that I'm doing it, but you can unlearn that and mm-hmm. move forward with a new perspective. And that is also how more widespread change is going to happen. Again, if we can do that individually, collectively, we're going to see a big difference. I agree. I agree. Education and, yep, doing the little thing and keeping our foot on the gas. Last pivot before we wrap up this conversation. You started trail running 15, 16 years ago, got into ultras, have had a lot of success at some big races. What I'm interested to learn from you is what are some of the biggest ways that the sport of trail and ultra running have changed and evolved in the past 15 years or so? Well, uh, wow, it has changed quite a bit in terms of the amount of races. And I would say the, you know, I used to, for example, when I first moved to Oregon, there's this race up here called Waldo 100K. I mm-hmm. remember uh, I've done it three times and I used to print out the entry and mail it in snail mail with a check. And now you have to get on your computer and like, you know, hit refresh, refresh. And then only, you know, you, most people don't get in. Um, so, and then there's just so many races now, like there's races everywhere that are like filling up too. And, but I would say furthermore, like the competition, uh, has increased incredibly. I mean, fast, really fast guys like you <laughs> are figuring out how to run ultras and figure out how to run them very fast. And I so, haven't figured it out yet, FYI. <laughs> 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 no, I figured it out for other people, not for myself necessarily. <laughs> but I would say that is, uh, you know, there's been more money in the sport um, and that has its pros and cons as well. Um, but the competition and just the mushrooming of the actual like participation and races themselves, which I think is great. Um, but there's definitely has been some growing pains and, um, you know, with money always brings, you know, different aspects of, of, of sports. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm really thankful that I hit the sport when I did because I was able to, you know, form a business and kind of make, I'm making a living doing something that I love to do within this niche sport. So, and same with you, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, 20 years ago, probably wouldn't have been able to do this. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty incredible. The opportunities that we have now, some of it due to, technology, but also just given the growth of the sport, as you described, in terms of the number of events, it getting more competitive, more people just showing interest in it and wanting to be involved. And yeah, I mean, I haven't been involved for all that long, but just in the last six years that I really have, it's pretty wild to think about how it's changed in that short period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even like races like Western States, I mean, I was lucky, lucky enough to do that race four times. But, you know, I have, I know people that have, you know, tried to get into this race for years and still not, not getting in and hard rock as well, you know, as another example where it's like myself included, I've never done hard rock. And it's like, I don't, I mean, people's careers are passing them by and they're not able to do these, these kind of, you know, these races that are kind of like a notch in the belt. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but um there's lots of great places out there lots of great races um always trying to remind myself and others to just feed the good wolf as i say it's see the positive like there's always going to be negative uh kind of rabbit holes you can go down but you've got to pull yourself out and see the positive in whatever situation you're in last question building off of the one i just asked you how do you hope the sport continues to evolve in the next 15 years i think um really having uh kind of like touching back on what we just got done chatting about is i hope we grow and see more inclusion and diversity in the sport i would really like to see that uh i would like to see um if possible more um maybe if races could be a little bit more open towards like entries. I don't, I know there's certain permitting and certain restrictions on a lot of races, but again, I think there's, there's a kind of imbalance on some of these big races that people want to do. And it's like, it's almost like you have almost better luck playing the lottery than getting into some of these races. So I wonder if there's some sort of some, I wonder if there's some sort of way that we can um, restructure, recalibrate those kind of ways to get in um to to allow people to feel more connected and more involved in these uh events but yeah i think i think at the core of our sport if it just continues to be all about supportiveness camaraderie we're all in this together we're uh, it's kind of a microcosm for what i'd like like for us to be as a society too it's like we're all in this together let's all help each other out it's everybody's running their own race but we're all doing this together, right? And uh, I feel like if our sport kind of continues the core of this, of like it's more about the intrinsic, less about, like I said early on in this podcast, like it, when I first changed my life, I was always trying to change the external thing, but I found out that it was an inside job. So the same thing with the sport, it's less about the money and the sponsors and what you're going to get if you win. It's more about the intrinsic rewards. And so I think as long as we keep that, those core values, I'd love to see, you know, it grow and, and, and include more people of color and, um, access for people too. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap this one up. Yassine, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for being who you are and all that you bring to the running community. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much, Mario, too. Right back at you. I mean, you're doing such great work, great content, spreading all of this information. I love waking up in the morning and seeing all the the articles and you have such great people on your show and I'm honored to be one of them. But you keep doing you too. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. another episode in the books thank you so much for listening in if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on instagram twitter or facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts spotify or whatever platform you're listening to this on which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me 
A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W. H-O-O-P.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout. John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>